Africa is a Country podcast. I am your host, William Shorkey, and this is Africa is a Country's weekly talk and interview show, which assesses global politics from a left and African perspective. You can find us on whatever your favorite listening platform is, Google, Apple, Spotify. Be sure to subscribe, leave us a comment, tell us what you think, what you like, what you don't like, and we will respond to as much feedback as we can. Also make sure to follow Africa as a country on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, probably on TikTok soon. And more importantly, to head over to africasacountry.com to check over new writing on politics on the continent from a left perspective. Now, if you missed our program last week, that was a great conversation with Nihal Al-Assa, who is a writer and researcher based in London, but from Egypt. And the conversation we had was on Egypt's economic crisis the state of left-wing politics in Egypt, as well as the legacies of Nasserism. Be sure to give that a listen that is available wherever you listen to your podcasts. Now, on this week's episode, it goes without saying that the climate crisis is the problem of our time. Yet, despite rhetoric from governments and big corporations that structural changes are imminent, none seem to be forthcoming and emissions continue apace. How come? Joining us on the program to discuss this is Professor Matt Huber, who's going to talk about his latest book, Climate Change as Class War, Building Socialism on a Warming Planet. Professor Huber argues that the only way to confront climate change is to build working class power on a planetary scale. Now, I ask him what kind of politics this entails, and if the working class is the agent of change, who exactly is the working class? To listen to his answers, here is the interview. Joining me on the program is Professor Matt Huber, who is Assistant Professor of Geography at Syracuse University. He is the author of Lifeblood, Oil, Freedom and the Forces of Capital, as well as Climate Change as Class War, Building Socialism on a Warming Planet, which came out this month with Verso Books. Professor Huber, thank you so much for coming onto the program and congratulations on the publication of the new book. Thanks so much for having me. So I want to start by saying that your book, I think, begins with a fairly disconsoling premise, which is that the movement for climate justice around the world is pretty much losing. And I think it's something that might catch a lot of readers off guard because looking around at all the ambitious commitments made by different governments, not only in the West, but even China, looking at the overtures from capital to redirect financing to green investment. And more importantly, I think the kind of general media hype around different movements, whether it's Fridays for Future, the Sunrise Movement, Extinction Rebellion, or whatever it is, a lot of people wouldn't say it's the case that Mm -hmm. we're losing. It feels like there's been a real paradigm shift, a widespread Mm -hmm. acknowledgement that climate change is a real and serious problem and that urgent and drastic action is needed to address it. But in spite of that, you are of the assessment that we're losing. Why do you think that's the case? Well, the only the only metric that really matters in this is emissions, and they keep going up. <laughs> I mean, to be to be fair, they, they did go down because of a global pandemic mm. for a brief time. But um, in 2021, they were uh, up a significant um, percent the biggest percentage rise in many years, I think. And also, uh, you know, if you look around this year and last year as the 
as the economy starts to recover from the pandemic and as you're starting to see these supply chain disruptions and war in Ukraine and all this stuff, what we're starting to see now in 2022 is um, in, in, in a very disconcerting level of mass profitability for the fossil fuel industry. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, the oil and gas industry is reporting some of its best profits in over a decade. Uh, the coal industry is booming right now um, as, as as countries are sort of scrambling to shift to coal with Russian uh, oil and gas off the market. Um I wish I had these numbers in front of me, but I, I compiled some of them like Peabody oils, uh, sorry, Peabody coal is like the largest coal private coal company in the, on the planet. And they, in February, um, sort of reported earnings that were far above than any analyst ever predicted. And so they're getting these windfall profits. So fossil fuels are as profitable as ever. It's mm-hmm. 2022. The science, as we know, is incredibly clear that we have to scale down these um, industries. And yet it's just so clearly this year not happening. And a lot of that kind of hopeful feeling you're, you're referencing took place in 2019, 2020, a lot of, you know, very good announcements of targets, right? Um, but targets are not action. And we've actually been through rounds of projections and targets with the Kyoto Protocol and all these rounds of climate negotiations that, and we know obviously that a lot of the targets and, and announcements of goals is, is rooted in a Paris treaty that has no teeth, has no sanctions for not abiding by your targets. And even um, in the United States where I'm at, Joe Biden's announced this sort of ambitious, we're going to reduce emissions by 50% um, by 2035. Um, and Almost everyone in the Biden administration now, after we're dealing with inflation and the war, and, and he's now begging the oil industry to invest more. Everyone's in the, the climate legislation he tried to push through is off the table. It's failed. Everyone's acknowledging that those targets he announced are not going to happen. And it's, it's you know, so um, I, I agree. I think in, in 2019 in particular, there was a lot of hope. The movement was growing and there was a lot of kind of talk. Right. But I think now here we are in 2022, it's clear it's gone pretty awry. It's clear that the fossil fuel industry is going to keep digging this stuff out of the ground as long as it's profitable to do so. Mm. And basically, um, if you'll indulge me, uh, there's this great quote, this great quote from volume one of Capital where Mark says, uh, capital takes no account of the life of the worker unless society forces it to do so. And I feel like that's where we're at. Capital takes no account of the the life of the planet unless society can build a force that can get it to stop. And we mm. just haven't been able to do that. And and you know, even the oil and gas industry is announcing that oh, we're going to reach net zero by 2050, but we cannot believe them and and treat that as a good faith claim. And so we have to build the kind of power that can actually stop emissions from rising, which is again the only metric that can show that we're winning this fight. Mm. It's interesting that you just cited volume one of Capital, uh, which I think answers the question I'm about to ask as the blame for the predicament we're in falls squarely on the shoulders of Capital. But thinking about, as you were describing at the beginning, how emissions slightly reduced during the pandemic and now they're rising again, in a lot of corners, that's often viewed as a reason for the responsibility for 
climate change falling on the shoulders of consumers. So mm -hmm. the idea goes that, look, precisely because we were all stuck at home, we were moving right. around a lot less, we were consuming less, that only testifies to the degree to which your individual behavior has a massive bearing on emissions to the planet. Um, sure. And this has been a way in which climate change has been thought of in, in for, for many decades. Um, how how has that been the case? What what you call uh, the carbon footprint ideology uh, yeah. of of capitalism, which treats climate change as an individualized rather than collective problem, and mm -hmm. a collective problem that's polarized across class lines, as you argue. Uh, how did that kind of how did that ideology emerge, and where do you see it? in the contemporary moments? Does it have a lot of purchase or is it starting to be questioned? Yeah. Um, so first of all, I would say that um, I wish I had the numbers in front of me, but my sense is that in 2020 emissions went down maybe 8%, something like that. And um, I think, uh, again, I don't have the exact numbers, but science Science is saying we basically, I think at best in, in, in uh, wealthy parts of the world, we probably need reductions of at least 10%, if not more, every year ongoing. And of course, those emissions went down not because of good, virtuous, low carbon uh, choices by consumers, but because of a massive economic crisis and massive unemployment of people. Um, and of course, a good degree of professional class people staying home and working on the internet. But but that is not a model for um, mm. the kind of wholesale um, uh, transformation of our energy system that we actually need. You know, massive economic uh, recession is not a good selling point of something we want to do. So, so to stay, take a step back, like um, uh, the idea that that um, theory would lend credence to is that really the 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 root of our um, climate crisis is really in changing the lifestyle choices and behaviors of millions of dispersed consumers. And that ultimately it's the consumers who drive the cars, fly, fly in planes and, and heat their homes who are really driving the climate crisis. And that is itself a, a popular theory about the economy that you could root in neoclassical economics and, um, neoliberal ideology that really it's consumer demand that drives the economy. It's consumer sovereignty that drives the economy. It's consumers that really are ultimately deciding what is produced because they ultimately make the choice to consume. But, you know, a Marxist or socialist perspective on the economy doesn't think of the economy that way at all. They see it as a economy driven and controlled by a class of people that control production and profit on production. Um, so the, the, the carbon footprint ideology really, um, has a number of, of problems. I mean, one problem is the whole idea of a carbon footprint was invented by British petroleum <laughs> 2004 to, and, and scholars have shown that the oil and gas and the fossil fuel industry is consistently trying to construct this narrative that puts attention away from them and on to the consumers. Um, the other, I, the other problem is again, you start to look at any kind of moment of carbon of a carbon footprint of an individual consumer decision 
Like if you're driving a car, there are emissions there, but should you, the consumer, be responsible for 100% of those emissions? What about all the people profiting off that consumption? The people that sold you the gasoline, the people that sold you the car, they're actually making a lot of money off that transaction. So any moment of consumption has users that are just trying to like meet their needs and live in a horrible capitalist world and then profiteers who are profiting off those those commodities and and my argument is we really should focus on the profiteers the people who make all the money off these commodities um and then the final thing is there's even in you know you see this even on jacobin and socialist publications mm -hmm. where they talk about climate change is a problem of class and it's a problem of inequality but when they talk about that they use data that only acts as if the worst thing the rich do to the climate is eat meat and fly in planes and consume like the rich are bad consumers and that's why they're wrecking the climate but that doesn't take into account how those rich people became rich in the first place how they generate the money that allows for their consumption and if you start looking at that activity how they make their money in their capitalist uh businesses you probably find that that activity has way more climate impact so an example I try to draw on is you can imagine a CEO of a of a chemical company who spends eight to 12 hours a day sort of organizing this global network of chemical factories that emit millions of tons per year. And then he goes home in an SUV and eats a steak. And for some reason, when we talk about carbon inequality, this is like people like Thomas Piketty and really like smart analysts of inequality. They only look at the steak in the, in the SUV they don't look at what what they're doing to make all that money in the first place and and that has way more impact you know the stake in the suv is a drop in the bucket compared to their role as a capitalist who owns capital and invests in fossil fuel infrastructure and and the last thing i'll say is like this silly way of looking at inequality that only looks at rich people's consumption would then conclude that like a hollywood actor say like brad pitt might have a higher carbon footprint than a fossil fuel executive because that fossil fuel executive like takes public transit or something. But no one, no one would, no one would think that Brad Pitt has is worse for the climate than the fossil fuel executive. But that's how that way of analyzing carbon inequality sort of that's all they see is consumption mm -hmm. and lifestyle. They they erase production, they erase ownership, and and that's where we need to focus. And this, I suppose, all comes down to how you theorize about class, because I imagine the retort from uh, Piketty or someone else would be to say, we're not obscuring class. In fact, we're talking in class terms. We're talking right. about a division between rich and poor. But how they think about rich and poor is very different from a Marxist understanding of rich and poor, in fact, and in a Marxist analysis, the words rich and poor don't even factor in a relevant right. way. So right. what what do you think is a, a way to theorize about class that gets us to the answer for whom is responsible and whom to target in our political action? Yeah, so I, what I try to do in the book is just go to a painfully basic socialist Marxist definition of class, which is your relationship to the means of production. And there's a class of people that own uh, and, and control production for profit. And then there's a wider working class that doesn't own very much, but their labor power that has to sell um, their labor power on a market to survive. 
Um, now that's just a very different way of thinking about class than uh, Piketty and others who would just look at one's income or wealth in monetary terms and then just divide up society into an upper class and a middle class. Um, Eric Olin Wright calls this a grad gradational theory of class where you just sort of have these mm -hmm. quintiles and you kind of look at the income data and the wealth data. And that, all that data doesn't tell you a whole lot about um, what, uh, who owns what and how they generate the money and income that they get. And that's what a, a Marxist theory of class would get you. There's other theories of class that are, I'd say, more like culturalist that kind of talk about like your identity and how you talk and how you behave and how you dress. And, and there's a whole lot of that in climate politics because it's ultimately about behavior and lifestyle choices and being a low carbon virtuous consumer. So that kind of class performance of identity through low carbon virtue is going on, <laughs> but it's not uh, getting us any closer to understanding who's responsible. And so what I try to do in the book is like, if you look at climate change very seriously, it's ultimately like in those old socialist dictums, like it's a struggle over industrial production. It's a struggle over how we produce our means of uh, existence, whether that be energy, whether it be transport, uh, housing, all these things that are crucial to human life are need to be decarbonized. And so this old school version of class where it's about seizing the means of production and, and building working class power to kind of take more social control over production. That's actually a really useful way to think about the climate crisis, because that's actually what we got to do. Because again, it's it's really the, the owners of these production systems who are most responsible for the climate crisis. And it's those people who are hell bent on continuing these production systems well into this century, probably next century, so that they can keep the profits going on their investments that you know, a lot of their investments are long-term investments that they expect to uh, attract returns for decades to come. And they're not going to give those up without a fight. So to me, this, this class analysis that focuses on the means of production, focuses on production, is very relevant to the climate crisis. And, and it's interesting because most people in, in my field of academia have sort of acted like that kind of old Marxist theory of class is now no longer relevant because now we live in a knowledge economy and Production doesn't matter and everyone's working uh, in digital tech worlds. But for climate change, like still the industrial sector, the most emissions are coming from things like steel, from cement, from, from material production. So it's actually this old socialist class theory, way more relevant and useful to understand the climate crisis, in my opinion. Mm. And I, yeah, I guess not only people in your field, but I think a lot of a lot of people on the left in general yeah. would would question the idea that classical Marxist cla class analysis is useful for understanding the, the climate crisis. And they would probably argue that when we think of the working class or working class politics as being the vehicle for change and transformation, this harkens back to an idea of an industrial proletariat, which is right. outdated. And mm -hmm. most people across the world don't work in nine to five factory jobs as they maybe did in the mid 20th century. So when you argue for a working class politics and a working class response to the climate crisis, who is the working class in your view? Right. 
That's great. <laughs> great questions. <laughs> uh, I mean, the first thing I'd say in response is that actually, if you look globally, like if you look in the United States, yes, there's been a decline in the industrial proletariat. And there's actually uh, in kind of left academia, there's this whole cottage industry of people mm. that say, if you want to look at ecology, it's really not about the production. It's about the zone of reproduction and life making and ecology. Um, but um, if you look globally, I mean, we've actually seen in the last, let's say, 40 years, a massive expansion of the global proletariat by, uh, I think the International Labor Organization says by something, um, maybe 1.3 billion people have been added to the global proletariat, whether that be China or uh, the former Soviet Union. And you see these newly industrializing uh, countries in Cambodia, Vietnam, you see this massive proletarianization happening all around the world. And, and of course, as Mike Davis has shown, a lot of a lot of that proletarianization has not led to people going into that classical wage labor in a factory. A lot of it has gone into the informal economy and the informal proletariat, um, and that's uh, more the the, the kind of um, situation in the global south. But there has been sort of a huge expansion of just straight up industrial uh, proletarianization out mm. of the pages of capital over the last three three or four decades. Um, um, but I actually think that if you if you try to if you try to say the 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 Marxist definition of the working class is the industrial proletariat, the the just just factory workers, like you're actually missing a lot because I think Marx's definition of the working class is more a class of people who are separated from the means of production, right? Who are dispossessed, particularly from their relationship to the land, where they've lost any um, any sort of uh, guaranteed way to make a living or to make, uh, it, they've lost access to the means of subsistence through direct relationship with ecological life, with the land itself. <laughs> And what that does is, is it forces this process of proletarianization, it forces this class of people to survive via the market. And if, like I said before, that might be a wage job in a factory, but more likely it's going to be some sort of uh, informal economy, uh, you know, piecing together survival through all sorts of different strategies. But ultimately, a lot of those strategies interface with this sort of proletarian insecurity of life and existence through where your, your survival really depends on the market. And so I think that gives us a broader definition of this big mass of people that can only survive through the market and through selling um, their labor power in whatever form that is on the market. That's sort of a broader definition of the working class. And it can include, again, those informal workers, but it can also, you know, include industrial workers, but it can also include you know, there's a lot of attention now in the United States over rapidly expanding workers in the service sector, whether that be low wage jobs and retail and food service or health care and home health aides. And so these are all working class people. They, and what I argue in the book is that they face what I call a proletarian ecology where they're, they, they have this fundamental insecurity of meeting their basic needs. And that's kind of the, the case for working class people everywhere, including, you know, you know a rich country like the United States, where people, you know, like 64% live paycheck to paycheck, about two thirds struggle to afford health care, which is a basic need. 
even a third of Americans three years ago, and this is probably worse now, uh, struggle to pay their utility bills. You know, they're making decisions on, am I going to put food on the table or am I going to pay the heating? You know, and so this is the this is this proletarian insecurity. Um, and so what I argue in the, if you want me to go on on this, what I argue in the book is that um, a lot of climate activism and policy, uh, political analysis in the climate justice movement has, has sort of acted like, well, the, the people who are going to be the, um, the actors of this struggle are on the front lines of climate change and climate destruction. So yeah. people that are seeing the direct, um, like direct threats to their livelihoods and survival through climate change, like drought and floods and superstorms, but also the people who are in the front lines of like toxic fossil fuel infrastructure who are getting poisoned by these fossil fuel infrastructures. And while I think those are some of the most marginalized and oppressed populations in our society, and they, they we need to win climate action to, to, to lift that oppression, I actually think it's actually quite a narrow group of people that are actually mm -hmm. always talking about like marginalized communities are, are the communities that are going to be at the center of climate action. But it actually leaves out, I would say, the mass majority of the working class whose main threats of survival is not pollution or climate change, but the market itself, like just struggling to get enough money to meet your basic needs. And so if we can frame a climate politics that's more about meeting people's basic needs um, uh, in that wider sense, that we might be able to build a broader base, build a broader movement. And, and so what I argue is that, uh, you know, like the, the things that working class people struggle to afford, like energy and like transport and housing and, um, and uh, you know, healthcare, these are actually the very sectors we need to drastically decarbonize and drastically transform. So if we could just get our act together and start building a climate program that's more about um, meeting people's meeting broader working class needs um, it, you know instead of like saying we want a carbon tax to make energy prices higher so that they internalize the cost of emissions no we a socialist approach would say we want to give cheaper or maybe even decommodified energy as a human right or electricity as a human right to to win over working class people who are struggling to access electricity and so that um, this wider kind of proletarian approach to climate politics could just um, be be uh, able to build a broader mass base that mm -hmm. might be able to build the power that could actually take on the capitalists who are doing the poisoning of these marginalized communities and 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 causing climate change ultimately, which is having all these uneven uh, injustices across the world too. Mm. Before we before we talk about how we think about who the political subject of climate politics is. I want to talk about the processes through which this decision or this conventional wisdom is arrived at. And I want to ask you a trick question. Does a, does a researcher at a climate justice NGO count as a member of the working class or, or not? <laughs> Okay, so it's dicey. Um, the book, I, I, much of the book hinges on an argument about the role of what I call the professional class in shaping climate politics. And these would be people like, um, you know, very educated NGO staffers, or academics or journalists or scientists. If you look around the climate justice movement, 
these are the people really driving and shaping a lot of the activity. Um, and from a technically Marxist perspective, like these people pretty much need to work to survive. <laughs> yeah. So they pretty much they're they're making a wage or, or sometimes a salary, uh, just like everyone else. And, and, and a lot of these professionals really, you know, couldn't survive very long without that wage income. So in a very technical sense, you could say they're working class. Um, that didn't work for my kind of three class framework for the book. Um, so when you get in the nitty gritty, like there's very, there's a lot of different theories on what this class is. We have Barbara and John Ehrenreich call them the professional managerial class. Eric Olin Wright argues that they're kind of a class between capital and labor. And they have these kind of contradictory class locations where they have something we, I haven't talked about that defines working class and is a lack of autonomy and under their, their work and a lack of power over their own work conditions. And a lot of these professionals do have more autonomy. They do have a little more power over their work life that you wouldn't see for working class people. So it's not a very good answer, but it's very complicated. Mm. Um, they're sort of partially working class, but also let's be clear also, they, they basically what how I define them is that they basically use credentials to carve out advantages in the mm -hmm. in the labor movement in the, sorry in the labor market and um that 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 this creates these kind of middle class levels of, of economic security amidst a, a, a highly unequal neoliberal um gilded age you know barbaric form of capitalism where you get these little islands of relative material security in these professional domains and um and so and and also the thing you can say about a lot of professionals is that they have a very different relation to production right so if we're going to ground a, a, a class in in relation to the production a lot of this work in the professional domain is what we would call knowledge work it's work in the knowledge economy and so it's actually quite separated from material production. It's not like the industrial proletariat that's like in the material productive system and has that sort of power over the material productive system. So in many ways, a lot of the professionals kind of are so distanced, distanced from industrial production that they kind of treat it as this sort of abstract thing that's out there and just purely causing harm to communities and environments. And not something that we're sort of inside and we need to, you know, build power and, and seize, right, as an old mm. socialist would say. So there's this kind of distance from production that defines the professional class as well. Mm. Is it the case that that distance from production must necessarily lead to a kind of misguided conception mm -hmm. of the problem? Is it yeah. is it possible to sort of, because I think the, the interesting thing about the, the location of the professional class in the climate justice space is, as you point out in the book, uh, a lot of a lot of the actors involved here often correctly call attention to, let's say, unequal distributions of wealth, to the power of fossil fuel capital, and so on and so forth, but nonetheless end up arriving at conclusions which reinforce the basic tenets of of carbon footprint ideology so they'll end up kind of and maybe we should talk about this separately but they'll but they'll end up sort of advocating for a kind of degrowth approach 
to yes. to climate justice saying that well actually the problem is we need to we need to enter policy p- spaces to to craft a policy that can um restrict uh, the consumption of of not only ordinary consumers but also of fossil fuel capital um yeah. and never sort of extend to the point of of actually wanting to basically expropriate fossil fuel capital um and 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 redirect control over production to to the working class how does how does that sort of misstep happen where it's a lot of sort of sensible i think um yeah. well-intentioned commentators uh commit this commit this error that you point out yeah so the one thing i try to make clear is that there's really nothing inherently wrong with professional class people being involved in environmental politics or socialist politics or working class politics in fact if you look at the history of the working class movement and socialist movements there's always these strata of intellectuals and highly educated professionals who are not only in the movement but ultimately shaping these movements they're they're the party officers they're the trade union bureaucrats um, and but if you look at the history of those movements, that they are able to channel their um, education or whatever into into building a broader mass politics, mass working class movement, and building a broader base. Um, the problem becomes if you're if you're advocating a professional class politics that appeals a lot to other professionals, but doesn't appeal very much beyond that uh, group of highly educated professional class people. And that's a real problem that I try to argue in the, in the book is, is a democratic problem. I mean, mm. one estimate is, you know, in the United States, the professional class is something like 22% of the workforce, right? Um, in the United States, the wealthiest country in the world, 63% of people don't have a college degree, right? So if your politics is only speaking to that minority of highly educated professionals, you're not really able to build a majoritarian mass politics, mass movement. Um, so I, I argue that the professional class form of climate politics is is not inherently problematic, but it's problematic because it's it's really a politics that's sort of inherently antagonistic to the broader majority of the working class. I mean, there's a couple ways you can talk about this. First, it's just a politics that's obsessed with knowledge and belief and denial of the science. And, you know, science is real, believe science and all this stuff which really is important to highly credentialed educated people but doesn't really speak to those everyday material needs of people just struggling to get by deciding if they're going to pay their heating bill or get the food on the table um the other thing is i think because the professional class project is ultimately one about gaining some level of economic security in the in this unequal world they actually sometimes have a relative degree of material comfort middle-class comfort that's attached to these consumption practices that tend to be villainized by the carbon footprint ideology, like single family home ownership and car ownership and air travel, like professional expectations of air travel. So that leads to what I call the kind of inward looking moral politics of carbon guilt, where they're, they're feeling this complicity and anxiety about how their consumption's embedded in the, all the climate breakdown and that they sort of, instead of really thinking about blaming the owners of capital that I think we should blame, they blame themselves, right? They think they're 
the real polluter elites in this scenario. And they're the ones causing climate. The other problems with professional class people, they tend to be very narcissistic. <laughs> <laughs> they think it's them who's causing climate breakdown. And, um, and so that anxiety about consumption does lead to a whole host of, of like you said, degrowth politics or what I, I try to frame it in a broader sense of what I call the politics of less, right? Mm. That we need to reductions, we need to scale down this, we need to reduce that. And also with degrowth politics, uh, they know they not only have these like slogans that are literally like, we can live better with less, like that's a degrowth slogan or voluntary simplicity, like reducing to, to, to be lighter on the earth. But um, they also sort of propose all these really like niche, small scale um, solutions like urban gardens or bike sharing or communal kitchens that are really popular amongst degrowth activists, but are not um, massively popular. They're not sort of a basis for a mass popular movement. And again, um, for, for the mass of the working class to ask to say we need to live better with less would sound really weird because they would say we've been living we've been living worse with less for mm. decades. Mm. And nothing but wage stagnation. There's been horrible levels of debt and and insecurity that's defined the neoliberal era. The, the neoliberal era has been defined by austerity, belt tightening, and and reduction. So for an environmental movement to really center less reduction and degrowth and all this stuff just seems strategically really problematic as appealing as it is to those professional almost all academics who really love this degrowth stuff mm. so to ask the question of the converse of the politics of less what would the politics of more look like and more for for whom because right. i guess someone could say that the degrowth argument contains a kernel of truth to it insofar as it sets our minds to the problems of consumerism. So the ideology of consumerism and capitalism, where we are encouraged to consume for the sake of consuming. And this becomes a means through which more profit is facilitated for corporations rather than production being geared towards actually meeting people's needs. And so the objection is not necessarily to consumption in and of itself, but it's arguing that we need to rethink what we consume for and that consumption needs to be more tied to use values, to things that are actually going to help us in our everyday life, rather than consumption for superfluous and unnecessary needs. And that this actually requires a kind of normative shift in how we think of the good life, one that is yeah. directed away from what capitalism tells us and one that uh, socialism tells us. So yeah. uh, what, we are, what would the politics of more look like? And, and is it just an argument for abundance um, mm -hmm. or is it abundance towards uh, an end grounded in, in socialist politics? Yeah, that's great. Um, so, you know, one way in which this is read is that, um, oh, I'm, I'm just arguing for like the continuation of some American way of life that's just based on gluttonous consumerism. And, and I think as socialists, we should reject um, 
what I would call and in the book, I, it's sort of buried in there, but I talk about how ultimately like um, working class struggle in the thirties kind of what they won was an actually highly privatized form of consumption, pri mm. what I call privatized provisioning, like this very atomized suburban um, uh, way of living where everyone's kind of isolated from each other. Like no socialist would say that's what we want to shoot for, right? Like that's an extremely individualistic and privatized and capitalist way to organize people's lives. And so um, ultimately a socialist would want to um, exactly what you said, sort of reframe visions of what the good life means, but also reframe consumption as not something that's all about private choices and private this, uh, private provisioning, but that is collective, right? And so a politics of more would would say we're going to build more, uh, we're going to grow, uh, you know, huge amounts of green energy and clean energy. And we're not just going to grow it um, to decarbonize, but we're going to grow it in a way that delivers cheaper uh, and more secure energy to the working class, right? Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, and you, people might freak out, but more energy means more emissions. But if we decarbonize, if we can make it clean energy, it's, 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 it's not going to necessarily have that climate impact. Um, and, and, uh, so the, the, you know, the, uh, so it's going to be, you know, and the green new deal was, was talking about a, a vision of like green public housing. We're going to build massive amounts of public housing. That's not only like a, a very nice place to live for people, but also that is retrofitted in a way that's going to have very little climate impact. And so we're going to build public housing, public transit, um, and, you know, this is, again, traditional socialist politics were about these like large scale visions of public investment that deliver material gains to the working class. And I think that's a model we can learn from um, as much as I think the New Deal kind of led to that privatized form of provisioning. It also just was fundamentally about public sector build out of energy systems, actually. So you can go back to the new deal like the tennessee valley authority was building out clean actually zero carbon hydroelectricity well i shouldn't say zero carbon because there's this problem with the you flood the reservoir and it leads to methane so it's not quite zero carbon but it's a clean uh, electricity and it was not only about delivering electricity to rural areas that didn't have it you know in 1934 10% of farms had electricity in the United States by 1950, 90% did. So it was literally about like delivering electricity to the masses, but not just electricity, but cheaper electricity. So that was the reason they wanted to build these dams because they knew it could, it could, it could bring cheaper energy uh, to these masses of poor people. And, and so that kind of vision, I think, I actually think that kind of vision has a lot of potential, not outside of the United States because we don't think about this in the United States where everyone just sort of takes for granted that there's this electrical grid that's pretty, pretty around and you can count on it, but there's 700 million people around the world that have zero electricity access. Mm -hmm. um, there's this quote I use in the book, this energy analyst analyzed that his refrigerator in Texas consumes a thousand kilowatts per year. And that's more energy that is then, or sorry, electricity and it's consumed by 3.3 billion people across the planet. So or if you look around the world, you kind of have the similar situation we face in the New Deal, where you have millions of billions of people that really lack secure energy access, secure electricity access. 
So I think um, we can actually revive this this idea that like we're going to build a lot of energy, we're going to grow energy to, to deliver this extremely important service to poor people who really could use it. Because again, um, when you're a when you're a secure academic degrowther, you might think like, oh, we don't need all this stuff, but you take for granted that like you live with 24 seven electricity and mm. you, you know, there's hospitals nearby that always have the electricity going. And I think there's still a lot of work to do to, to give that to all of humanity. And again, the, the sort of wider socialist vision of emancipating humanity through seizing production, like that's, there's a lot of potential for that around the world. Cause a lot of people still have very intermittent and not secure access to energy. Including in South Africa, where I am, where <laughs> I had to scramble just before recording with you to figure out if I was going to be on the receiving end uh, of a blackout. Um, yeah. But but I want to raise this question of how do we both provide energy that is cheap, accessible, but also zero carbon? And I right. think that sort of raises a, a, a technological question of... Right what technology can provide this and what technology can provide this to scale. And right. in your book, you, you look at nuclear energy quite favorably, um, right. which I think, you know, not only in general, uh, but, you know, especially on, on the left is, is, is a topic of, of much debate um, and yes. disagreement. Um, yes. So I'm, I'm curious to hear from you. What, what is the case case for nuclear and, is, is that the only way to go or can we imagine other ways of, of provisioning energy uh, that can meet the vision of providing um, energy to, to the great masses of the world cheaply, effectively, and without harming the environment? Um, so the, the first thing I'll say is that I think the debate over nuclear can be, you know, it's a lot about the environmental risks and what those are, or it can be heavily technical or ec economistic, like, uh, oh, it costs too much or, co or whatever. But the point I try to make is that we should take a more strategic class perspective. And at least in the United States, like if you look at what the electricity unions are saying about climate change, they're saying climate change is real. We believe science. And we also, as unions, believe that the one of the most important solutions is nuclear because it provides good unionized jobs to our members. And these nuclear power plants are, you know, family sustaining, good jobs. And so um, I think, strategically speaking, if we want to transform the electricity sector, which is at the core of any decarbonization challenge, we might want to listen to what those unions are saying. And and you know, we can't listen to everything because I think a lot of unions in the U.S. also want to keep open coal-fired power plants, right? But and as climate climate activists, we can't really accept that. Um, although uh, Joe Manchin, the West Virginia, the sort of villain senator, has advocated closing down coal plants and replacing them with nuclear power plants, which I think is a pretty interesting way to kind of keep keep these unionized jobs, keep these power plants open, but turn them over to zero carbon nuclear. Um, so the, those strategic class considerations, I think, just need more. We just need to think about that more when we think about these debates. Um, now, there's uh, 
you know, a lot of people are going to say, oh, nuclear is too expensive, right? But a lot of that has to do with neoliberal deregulation of electricity markets, which has created this weird like auctioning system that, you know, you have to sell into these markets and they give all these advantages to renewables. You know, you go back to country countries in like uh, Scandinavia or France, where basically the public sector took on the initial capital and uh, cost of building these nuclear plants. And they, you know, if you want to look at the most successful decarbonization um, uh, examples in history, it's basically like France and these Scandinavian countries that combine large-scale hydro and uh, large-scale nuclear with public investment to build out this energy infrastructure. And then once you build it out, it can be quite cheap. You don't hear that in France, they aren't suffering with massive electricity bills because of their nuclear power. Their, their grid's 75% nuclear. Um, uh, so, so I think there's a way to do it with public investment that could make it quite cheap with nuclear. Mm -hmm. Um, and of course the other thing is you hear a lot that, oh, um, wind and solar is, is so cheap. And so there's an interesting way in which a kind of neoliberal market-based argument has made its way to a lot of climate activists where they say, look, it's so cheap. The market's doing it for us already. Um, but the, the problem with that is that, um, as a, as a Marxist, we can look at the exchange value of renewables and say, uh, oh yeah, solar looks so cheap and wind looks so cheap. But if you look at the use value of these resources, you have to confront the fact that as much as we're trying to overcome this, they're still intermittent resources. And you know, Europe had this sort of drought and wind in the fall and what happened? They had to turn toward natural gas and there was all these uh, supply chain problems with natural gas and they had this energy crisis. And so the use value of renewables is still quite limited um, in terms of it can't deliver power 24 seven and socialists want to produce for use value. And so you got to just take that into account. Now, um, there could be ways to couple renewables with um, storage technologies, but batteries really only last like, uh, you know, like eight hours at best. Mm -hmm. And so if you live in a place like I live with, where the winters are long and the sun doesn't shine a lot, you know, you're going to need what are called long duration storage technologies that really, at least the market has not quite developed um, real scaled technologies for those long duration storage. So the other the other issue um, is you got to confront is renewables take up a lot of land and um, nuclear takes up tiny bits of land. So if you're going to expand renewables, you're going to have land conflicts. And I'm already seeing that I live in a rural area of New York State and there's already a lot of resistance to wind farms, to solar farms. And so um, these are all considerations we got to take into account. But in the United States, like the renewable energy industry is completely private. It's all basically owned by these Wall Street titans who are basically taking advantage of these tax credits and shielding their wealth from public coffers through this tax credit policy. And um, and, it, and it's not only highly private, it's really anti-union. So the, the jobs in the renewable energy industry aren't particularly beneficial to unions. So... This is all stuff we got to take into account, but I, I would say that I think there is some potential to do, again, massive public sector build outs of renewables, particularly in, in the U.S., if it matters to your listeners, like in the desert southwest, um, there's huge solar resources there. We should we have a lot of public land out there, so why not develop solar solar energy out there? There's a part of the United States called the, the, the wind belt, which is the plains region where it's just very windy. There's offshore wind. And so I think there's a lot of opportunities to do a big public sector build out of renewables that could be 
you know, folded into the grid in ways that are makes sense from a use value perspective. Um, but uh, this idea that, oh, it's so cheap and the market's just doing energy transition for us, I think is totally um, futile and uh, delusional, to be honest. Mm-hmm. I want to ask a question about what sort of politics can kind of build the power required for these large-scale public investments. Um, but before I do, uh, I'm interested to hear you explain why you think the United States is, I mean, it's fairly, I guess, obvious, but I think it would help to sort of say a bit more about why the United States, especially when thinking about the climate crisis, is, is such a central place to to pay attention to. Um, and I think I think the West in general, I think from from a global Southern perspective, although I don't agree with this argument to its full extent, because I think it, it too quickly absolves our own governments from doing the required work to take these, these problems seriously. And it, it gives a get out of jail free card to, to um, our local capitalists. But there is a very big way in which a lot of this is going to be decided in, in the West, um, in the West um, and in, in China, in, in Russia, by the great imperial powers um, and, and by whether or not there are substantial commitments made to help finance the required uh, technological transitions in, in, in the rest of the world to pay climate debts, so on and so forth. So, yeah, could you just say a bit about why the United States is, is so decisive a context for understanding mm-hmm. Uh, the climate futures uh, that we could possibly face. So, um, for one, they're you know they're, they're, they are the world's biggest historical emitter. So, you know, in terms of global historical emissions, the U.S. is number one. So, we have the most responsibility as a country, at least in terms of that climate debt. Um, but the the most important thing I think is that the U.S. is um, the, the the historical largest barrier to international climate action. You know, mm-hmm. you can look at 1992 when George H. W. Bush said the American way of life is non-negotiable and tried to tried to just throw cold water over any idea of international climate treaties. Then you get George W. Bush who, who withdraws from the Kyoto Protocol. Then of course you get um, often forgotten, but one of the most hopeful moments of international climate negotiations was Copenhagen in 2009. It was called Hopen, Hopenhagen. That's what they called it. Maybe <laughs> this big breakthrough. And then what happened? Basically, Barack Obama in the U.S. basically steamed, like basically threw a, a, a hand grenade in the whole negotiations and, and divided the countries against each other and, and basically made it so there was no breakthrough at all and no real firm agreement that would actually have teeth. And then, of course, to try to salvage his legacy, Obama tried to cobble together the Paris Treaty of 2015, which had no, uh, again, no sort of mandates or no sort of, you know, sanctions if you violate your uh, targets that we talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. So, um, so time and time again, then, of course, you get Trump who just withdraws from the Paris Treaty. Time and time again, the U.S. has been the biggest barrier to international climate solidarity. Um, so... One of my big, I think the big flaws of the book is it's very U.S. focused, but I do think the U.S. U.S. politics is a real tough nut to crack, and we're going to have to crack it if we're going to solve climate change. And I would say, um, uh, you know, God bless him, uh, Bernie Sanders, 
was the only candidate who was not only like waging this class struggle campaign and class struggle politics, but he also was the only candidate who was pledging to commit billions to to basically climate mitigation internationally. He was going to send billions, you know, how he could get this through Congress is a whole nother scenario, but he was going to send billions to South countries to help with climate mitigation and adaptation. And and he, he was, you know, even Elizabeth Warren didn't say that. She was about greening the military and de developing domestic energy uh, uh, capacity against in a kind of like global trade war against China. So, uh, uh, there is a kind of, I think, if we could win a kind of global, uh, sorry, a working class uh, po political movement in the U.S. that ha that had that kind of burning like international um, vision of climate debt, I think finally the U.S. might lead on climate, which is really what they need to do as the largest historical emitter. Mm. Are there reasons for hope? We're not in Copenhagen, but are there reasons for hope that this kind of working class politics that is rooted in international solidarity or as you describe species solidarity. Is there hope that this can be built? What are, where are the places to look for that kind of politics? Um, and, and what might that look like concretely as it unfolds? What are some of the, the main flashpoints that it will, it will encounter? Because I think your, you know, your book is obviously very, very persuasive, but um, as I said in the beginning, it began on this, on this, you know, quite pessimistic note that we're that we're losing. So how do we, how do we get to the point where we we start to win? Right. So one thing I should admit is, you know, I proposed the book um, when, uh, and I was writing the book you know, shortly after Donald Trump was elected. And there seemed to be a real breakthrough in um, climate politics where mm -hmm. that eventually is sort of concretized in this idea of a Green New Deal um, uh, that finally, like, we're going to not make climate change about believing science or material sacrifice, but we're going to basically try to use it as a platform to confront the real other crisis we're facing, which is neoliberal inequality and and expanding poverty and, and issues of working class insecurity. And so, um, but we have to admit that that Green New Deal kind of platform, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, she kind of drafted this resolution. And they did that with the express purpose of um, having a kind of document and a platform that the 2020 presidential candidates could kind of campaign around. And, and but when we see what happened, uh, essentially the Green New Deal candidate was Bernie and then he lost, right? <laughs> and Joe Biden went into the general election basically disavowing the Green New Deal and he won, right? So we we had this like really high level gambit of trying to win state power at the highest level of the presidency and in, in the core of empire and it, and it failed unsurprisingly. <laughs> um, so, but in many ways it was sort of I think, as Jane McAlevey would say, it was sort of a shortcut that we thought we we're going to revive a working class movement by uh, through electoral means, through a, a presidential campaign. Mm -hmm. And it was worth trying. And, and it's insane how close it actually got. I mean, there was a time in 2020 where it seemed like Bernie was going to actually win the nomination, but um, but it lost. And so mm -hmm. that kind of high level gambit at state power is really off the table now. You, you, look, you look at Biden's climate policy, and it's all tax credits for private renewable development. It's there's no 
Green New Deal public sector investment vision that, that we were all excited about. And so we have to admit that that lost, we have to think about why that lost. And for me, it kind of, uh, it's not typically how working class movements uh, have worked in history. It's not that you win the presidency and then working class organization follows. It's that working class organization proceeds and develops to make something like an electoral victory possible. And so there's no shortcuts now. We have to kind of get back to basics and rebuild the labor movement, rebuild working class institutions on the ground in communities. And so um, in the book, I, you know, I, I try to have some sort of suggestions on how to do that in, in the union movement and the labor movement, you know, trying to do political education and rank and file organizing and, and, and strategies within the electricity unions to try to basically tell these electricity unions if they don't have a more proactive climate strategy, they're going to be swept away by this kind of Wall Street green energy capitalism. Mm. So it's in their it's in their interest to really start being more proactive and organizing a, a union led green energy transition. And, um, and uh, I think there are examples across the world where you have much more militant workers in the electricity sector. I dug up a case of French utility workers basically shutting off the power to Amazon warehouses during the height of the holiday shopping season because they're pissed off about Macron trying to pass through this sort of regressive uh, re repeals of their pensions. And so that's like a model, you know, um, I know there's it's quite fraught um, uh, in South Africa, but there is a traditional kind of socialist trade union organizing that focuses on the electric utility sector that we could learn a lot from and learn from the the struggles and failures over ESCOM and all that corruption that's happened there. Um, uh, trade unions for energy democracy have all sorts, there's this uh, sort of, I don't know, organizing group that's trying to bring unions together uh, across the world to talk about climate change, talk about how we need more public ownership. They have lots of case studies we can learn from, like um, I believe there's one in South Korea where uh, workers organize specifically on climate grounds to shut down coal plants. Yeah. So there's a lot to learn from, but it's still not quite sufficient. But, but I think I, that's kind of, again, like the, there's no shortcuts. We have to rebuild working class power in the workplace, in unions. And, and, and also we have to think about political organization. Now in the U.S., we have this insane two party system. We've never had a labor party. We've never had a working class party. Um, but I think we got to start thinking about some kind of organization, if not a political party, some kind of like really institutionalized thing that workers see in their lives every day in their communities. That's the kind of thing that can start to deliver real material gains and start to build confidence among the working class that they they can win and they can win better lives through this movement that would be looking again to seize the means of production, right? Mm. So we have a long way to go. <laughs> but um and and uh, but I think uh, really the the main thing we have to do is focus on the labor movement and working class institutions, and maybe the political winds will shift um, such that a kind of big green new deal gambit at state power might be possible down the line. But that's certainly off the table now. And um, but if we build the organization, maybe we'll be ready to win that when it's available in the future. Mm. That does seem to be the the sort of intractable dilemma insofar as the only the only way through is by long patient painstaking organizing but the nature of the problem requires urgent 
action. Yeah. And yeah. I suppose I've often wondered if if that's maybe something to to make peace with, which is, I guess, the climate crisis is this big, scary, gigantic problem, which even in our sort of everyday discourse about is is hard to avoid evoking sort of catastrophic images of disaster and devastation. Um, but then that that itself kind of almost traps us in a in an approach which which is always in search of of the shortcuts, is always in search of of the quick fix because the nature of the problem seems to demand that. So so I guess this is not so much a, a question, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> but how do we yeah how do we kind of I guess yeah it's is can that dilemma be resolved or is it really just back back I mean this your book really feels like a back to basics a back to basics yeah. text um, and well, is that the only the only option we have I will say that when you listen to you know like. The climate movement they often they often say we got to change everything right naomi klein we got to change all of society we need a revolution right systems change that, yeah. yes we need system change and like that seems much more daunting um than let's say building a militant labor movement in one sector in one union i i have this cheeky thing in the book that i say we just build socialism in one sector not one country but one sector mm-hmm. and 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 build public ownership over electricity to build a decarbonization agenda and then hope that that can lead to other gains and in, uh, uh, in other sectors but that's sort of the immediate thing and so focusing on one sector seems a little more realizable than we got to change everything of society because we're not going to win probably a revolutionary overthrow of capitalism in time for the the climate change right mm-hmm. um if you'll indulge me i actually the 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 famous um amazing and, and and gone from us far too soon uh, socialist activist Leo Panich mm. had this great quote that addresses exactly what you're saying. If I could just read it, because I put it in an please. essay I wrote. And he says, the tenor of this of the moment is to say, quote, we've only got five to 10 years left because of the depth of the climate emergency. That kind of slogan was designed to get people to see how serious things are. But as political strategy, it is a dead end. We can't think in those terms, no matter how desperate the climate situation. We have to be able to think in terms of 10, 15, 20 years. There's fundamental class and organizational rebuilding to be done. It takes time. So I thought sobering, but but yeah. actually realistic. Um, you know, we, we can't, you know, this like we're all dead in but 2030. It's not always so helpful for thinking about the long durée of working class, rebuilding working class organization. And it does take time. But I also say, and I try to gesture to this in the conclusion of the book, that um, that it sometimes, as Lenin said, there are decades where nothing happens and there are uh, weeks where decades happen, right? So change can actually happen relatively quickly. And if you look at the only time the U.S. working class has really built up massive you know, strike capacity and really changed our politics was in the 1930s. But if you looked at the state of the working class movement in the late 20s, you wouldn't have seen, you wouldn't have predicted that they were going to have a breakthrough like four or five years later. And so conditions can change. You can have a crisis, you can have different political uh, conjunctures that can be more conducive to a rupture 
and a huge upsurge in working class uh, uh, activity, particularly like strikes and disruption that can really like in a short period of time, like really change the political calculus of society. So uh, it's going to take time. But I also think we have to think about when are those moments going to happen when there's a real conjuncture where we could have a breakthrough. And that might be sooner than we think, considering how much disasters keep coming at us in this climate climate um, breakdown. So I, I can't think of a of a better note to end, which ended up being surprisingly hopeful insofar as the only way through is to put our heads down, roll up our sleeves and, yes. and do the work. And if the opportunity arises, it arises. If it doesn't, we keep doing the work. Professor Huber, thank you so much for coming onto the program. A reminder of who I've been talking to. I've been chatting with Professor Matt Huber, who is Assistant Professor of Geography at Syracuse University. He's the author of Lifeblood, Oil Freedom and the Forces of Capital, as well as what we've been talking about today, which is his latest book, which just came out with Versa Books, and that is called Climate Change as Class War, Building Socialism on a Warming Planet. Do get yourselves a copy and a reminder to subscribe to us wherever you listen to your podcasts. And we'll see you again next time. Professor Huber, thanks so much once again. Thanks for having me. I really, your questions were so great and I really appreciate the conversation. Excellent. Thank you so much and good luck for promoting the book and I hope a lot of people buy it. Thanks so much, William. Excellent. And to our listeners, thank you so much for listening and see you again soon.